caretaker sort of describes somebody, you know, they don't really take pride in it. They see it more as an obligation or maybe a burden, whereas a caregiver sees it more as something that they take pride in that, you know, is personally meaningful to them that does not drain them to the extent that maybe it might the other person. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. Today, we are talking about caretaking, which is something that is, I think, a little bit out of our normal tonality and like just emotional space. And so uh, I'm I'm really excited for this conversation because this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, so we're here with Tyler McLeod, and I think this is going to be a really important conversation to have. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd echo that. I think that as someone that was like a former caretaker myself, I don't think it's a conversation that like I get to have very often. Um, so we're out here. <laughs> so I'm really excited for this conversation because um, I've been thinking a lot about caregiving and I almost never think about it because it's like not relevant to my life in any other way. But I recently like I know these two different families that are taking care of people with dementia and they're both handling it in really different ways. <laughs> like one of them is it's like the person with dementia is like being taken care of by his partner and he is like not handling it well. He's like really in denial. He gets really angry about it. The person who's like doing the caregiving. And then the other uh, you know, set of people that I know is it's like the complete polar opposite. It's like um, it's a woman caring for her mother who, you know, who also has dementia. And like she is just like handling it superbly. She is, you know, treating it like it's edifying for herself. Right. To be like, you know, she's like every time I make my mom a meal, like it's really gratifying for me to know that she's you know, like, you know, likes the meal and like I'm doing something for her. And it's like, I've just been thinking a lot about this. It's definitely not a dichotomy, but like just this, these two different extremes of like seeing caring for someone else as being something that is almost like something that you yourself get joy out of as, you know what I mean? Like as something that is gratifying in and of itself as an end and versus like seeing it as work. And I feel like once you're like... And I feel like those are just like two different personality types. Like, I don't know if it's something, I'm sure it's something you can practice, but I feel like if it's, if you're the type of person who sees it at work as work, it's so hard to start framing it as like, oh, like this is something that, you know, you're giving me an opportunity to care for you. And it's interesting because I'm also in the death, like positive space um, because I'm trying mm -hmm. to start a casket company. So it's also something that people talk about in a doula from a doula perspective is like, oh, like you should see, you know try to frame caregiving as being this thing that is actually an opportunity for you, you know, to show that you love and care for someone. Right. So anyway, that's just like what I have been thinking about, but I would love to hear more about what your story is and why you wanted to talk about it and just, yeah. 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 So, um, you know, I have been a caretaker. I was a caretaker, I should say. Um, so, um, when I was 10 years old, my father ended up, <clears throat> ended up suffering a, um, a massive stroke. Um, uh, just to give you a little bit of background about the experience, um, I 
was with him alone at the time. Um, we had just seen a family friend. He was over uh, visiting earlier that evening. And um, <clears throat> my, uh, so I was with my, my dad. We were in our living area. And, you know, he had just sat down. Um, I think I might have been playing with toys or something on the floor. Um, and all of a sudden I, I realized, I, I turned around and I remember he had sort of slouched out of out of his chair and had fallen on the floor. Um, he was completely unresponsive. Um, I remember going over to him, shaking his shoulder, trying to get his attention. Um, he was, again, completely unresponsive, um, both to my, um, you know, jostling his shoulder and me calling out his name. Um, I quickly realized that, you know, this was something serious, um, you know, even at, at that young an age. Um, Wait, how old were you again? <clears throat> I was uh, 10 years old. Okay. I think I just turned 10 uh, the previous year. Uh, and so I think maybe I waited a minute or so and then knew that this was, uh, you know, an instance where I needed to call 911. So I made that call. Um, I think the paramedics took about maybe five to 10 minutes to arrive. Um, fortunately, you know, in retrospect, it was, it was good that I was there because, um, uh, come to find out he, he had actually suffered a, a massive stroke. Um, we didn't know that at the time, but, um, they say that, you know, if you're able to provide care within the first hour, you know, it's extremely critical. Um, and, you know, especially in his case with it being a massive stroke, like it's even more imperative that, you know, the sooner the better. So, um, I remember the paramedics, you know, they took him out. Um, I remember we, I drove, I rode separately rather with, um, with a police officer that had arrived. Meanwhile, they had contacted my mom. Um, she was working as a nurse at, um, the Veterans Association Hospital, um, pretty close by. Um, so they notified her and then, um, we ended up uh, meeting up at the hospital. Um, I don't know. In, in retrospect, it's 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 like all these memories are very fragmented. Um, and then it's interesting too because the more you tell it, the more you know. Certain parts kind of stand out, and others are a little fuzzier. Um, Wait, I have a dumb question right from the beginning. Yeah. What exactly is a stroke? A stroke. So it's basically any kind of. Um, reduction in um, blood flow to certain parts of the brain. So there are actually two different types of strokes. It's an ischemic and a hemorrhagic. The, an ischemic, it's due to um, some sort of blockage to the brain. So there's thrombic and embolic, thrombic being localized, embolic meaning a blood clot has traveled from a different part of the body. And then hemorrhagic is the bursting of a blood vessel. So um, in both cases, there's oxygen-rich blood that's not getting to the brain, um, and it does not take very long at all for there to be permanent amounts of damage done. Um, so depending on the type of stroke, um, you know, once there somebody who has suffered one is in the care of medical professionals, they can administer medication that can help bust the um, you know the blood clot that's that's in place. Um, they have to be careful though, because if it happens to be hemorrhagic then, um, you know, administering that medication could potentially make it worse. So, um, 
he suffered the first type, which is actually more common. I think it's about 85% of all cases, maybe more. Um, but it affected him in a major artery, which, um, you know, led to more, more deficits on his end. So I'm, I'm guessing that like massively shifted the way that, you know, like your life was led. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so I am an only child. Uh, so it was really my mom, my dad and me, like it was the three of us. Uh, so this event, um, you know, obviously had a very huge personal impact on my, my father, both in terms of, um, you know, his livelihood, his ability to engage in a lot of the activities, um, that he had once engaged in, um, the portion of his brain that was affected, I think, um, it was a right-sided, so it affected the right side of his, um, his brain, which then affects the left side of your body. So he was fairly significantly paralyzed on, on his left side. Um, and then it being, I think more towards the frontal side of, uh, of the brain. Um, there were also a lot of changes, both personality wise. Again, it's, it's kind of strange because, you know, I was 10 years old. So my recollection of him beforehand is, you know, it's kind of fuzzy. It's kind of fuzzy. And I had obviously known him after the fact. So he, he ended up passing away in 2013. So my mom and I were caretakers for him for, for about 13 years. So I did know him more post-stroke than I did before. So it's sort of difficult to kind of compare the two. Yeah. Is it the kind of thing that you knew that he beforehand that he would have like a high likelihood of having stroke or was it like something that was totally out of the blue for you guys? So, I mean, my, my family has a pronounced, uh, history of, uh, cardiovascular disease. I think my paternal grandfather passed away from heart attack. Um, and then there's, you know, other individuals in the family that have had, have had similar issues. So, I mean, that increases your risk of stroke significantly. Um, I, remember actually and i didn't realize this until much later on but i'm pretty sure so to give you a little bit more um background my mom um was sort of the breadwinner of our family my dad was retired so he ended up staying home with me so um kind of a, a nice touch to this is that i was able to spend a whole lot of time with him you know very limited time but um yeah, I I did have a lot of good quality time with him, um, you know, before his his stroke. Well, I mean, it does really just affect your day to day so much in a way that it's just kind of like the water that you swim in. It's like I'm sure hard to even think of all the different ways that it probably affected your life. Yeah, and I think you know, being so young, you you're still kind of figuring out who you are and yourself pretty much, and to have all of this responsibility kind of thrown on you. Um, I think my mother did a very good job of trying to sort of preserve the normalcy that was there before. Um, you know, obviously this is a very new normal in a lot of ways, but I think she was very good at kind of keeping our family together. I know that was probably a very extreme, you know, responsibility placed on her. Fortunately, her medical background, I think, came into extreme handy mm. in this instance um you know a huge part of 
caretaking, caregiving is, you know, involves medication management, constant appointments, depending on the person's condition, you know, case management, making sure you ask the right questions during doctor's visits, depending on the person as well, you know, they, they may be more independent than others. And obviously with any kind of condition, like there's a potential for it to deteriorate. And if this is a chronic condition like stroke or Alzheimer's or anything like that, it kind of only gets worse going forward. So I think, um, you know, he survived for 13 years after this had happened. And I, I remember actually, um, as he was, as he was passing away, we had my aunt come and she mentioned that she didn't think, um, you know, had my mom had that, that sort of background and also the love for him and also the diligence and, you know, in kind of being selfless and, and taking care for him, taking care of him that, um, you know, he would have enjoyed the same quality of life as he had for as long as he had. And I don't feel like everybody who is taken care of enjoys that same sort of, you know, kind of situation. Yeah. I think that, so for, I don't think that I've ever like told, I don't think I've ever told the story on the podcast, but for the listeners that didn't know, I also was a caretaker as a child. I was raised by my grandparents and they both had cancer for like as long as I can remember. And, and yeah, they both, they both eventually ended up passing away from that. My grandfather at 10 when I was 10 and my grandmother when I was 14. So going back on what like Isabel said about sort of like carrying stuff with you that you might not even realize i wanted to ask you if you feel like your experience has made you any more or less empathetic to family medical emergencies like amongst your friends because i know like from my experience i think it's hard for me to empathize with sort of the panic mode that people will experience when something first goes wrong because like you said when you're in that caregiving role i think that what comes with that is always kind of not expecting, but being ready for a, like a rapid deterioration at any point. And yeah, so I feel like, you know, if a friend will let me know that like, you know, someone in their family like may have, you know, just been in an accident or whatever. And it's, I have to sort of like try to really empathize with like that sort of panic state. Cause I feel like I, will, I always want to go immediately. It's like pragmatic, like mm. problem solving role. Yeah. I, I mean, I think every in- situation is different obviously so it can also be potentially triggering if yeah depending on how similar it is and obviously how close you are to that person and potentially the person that you know is affected um i would say that it does make you more empathetic overall and i think it's more sort of i guess i guess sort of my my earlier point was maybe kind of going back to your point about like panic mode I think kind of being in that heightened stress response, like you're just maybe a little bit desensitized to it. And it also having to exercise, you know, that muscle on a daily basis, I think you're better able to kind of sit with a lot of those emergencies and they don't seem to, uh, I don't know, phase you as much potentially. Well, it was that like, what was your mentality Mm -hmm. about it at the time? Like, was it, was it the kind of thing like the only like the only two examples I have are the ones that I you know was talking about is like you know where you know you could the response could be like feeling really bitter or you know that you have to do this because it is not something that like most ten year olds have to do right or you know teenagers you know like you want like through your whole teens right um, versus like wow like I get to 
I feel like this actually like makes me really important. And like, I, you know, I'm more important to my parent than probably most other teenagers are because they, you know, I get to care for them in this way. I don't know what, what, like, what was your feelings about it? Yeah. Um, before I start with that, I actually, so there's sort of two terms, there's caregiver and caretaker. And I was really confused beforehand because I thought they were interchangeable, but I think there is actually a slight nuance in terms of how they're used. And I think caretaker sort of describes somebody, you know, they don't really take pride in it. They see it more as an obligation or maybe a burden, whereas a caregiver sees it more as something that they take pride in that, you know, is personally meaningful to them that does not drain them to the extent that maybe it might the other person. So I think it, maybe one has a more positive connotation, the other one has more of a negative one. Do you think that, or which category do you think you fall into? I I think it would probably be a caretaker, honestly. Um, as much as I hate to uh, kind of admit that, it is, it is hard. It, it requires a very selfless person. I think caretaking, caregiving, whichever one you want to use, um, it is... It's a very noble act. It uh, requires a lot of selflessness, a lot of sacrifice. Um, I don't think everybody is... I think everybody has the capacity. I don't know to what um, extent each person has the capacity to do it. I think it's sustainable if you have support. In my case, you know, it was just the three of us. A lot of my family lived very far away or had either passed away, so we didn't really have... That, that social network of support to, you know, really make it sustainable. I know, I, I don't know if I mentioned before, but my dad had, had lived for, for 13 years um, with this condition. And so my mom being his primary caretaker, um, me to some extent, like it really does drain on you. And if you don't have any relief, you know, on a consistent basis, it could be very hard to to sustain so there's that that aspect of it. I think it does generate a lot of resentment because there's a lot that's out of your control. It does seem like a very unfair situation. To be resentful also makes you feel guilty because you obviously love this person, but you at the same time have to recognize your own needs and you realize that there's this constant battle of, well, I need to do this for this person. I want to do it, but at the same time, I'm struggling to kind of keep up and, you know, take care of myself. Like, where do I find the time to do that? How do I disconnect? How do I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that I would like pretty wholeheartedly agree with everything you just said. Cause when you mapped out those definitions, I was like, well, I guess I'm definitely not a caregiver. Right. I definitely wasn't a caregiver. I feel like Isabel, like you're kind of like, I, I, you're sort of presenting it in sort of like, like a very like romantic and prideful light, which is like literally nothing. I never felt that way ever. It was like a, I think as a kid, it was just like a very like complicated, I knew that I had a very sort of atypical living situation. I knew that like, you know, my friends like did not have the same home, home life that I did. And I just like really wanted to like to be normal, you know? And I think that you hit the nail on the head, Tyler, when you were like, it can like bring out feelings of like guilt because you don't want to feel that way even as a kid I sort of like felt guilty for feeling that way and I think that the person that you're caring for I think their attitude also sort of affects the dynamic of it a lot and I think that my grandparents I mean they were um sick for a long time and had, had like varying attitudes obviously but I think that they were like very prideful people and didn't like to, to be cared for 
So that didn't help the situation, you know. I will say, picking up on something you said, another, I think, very noticeable aspect of that is that it's very isolating. Yeah. Um, caretaking be very isolating endeavor, especially at such an age, because this really differentiates you from your peer group. You know, I remember I was the only kid in school that, you know, had a dad that was in a wheelchair. Um, you know, if he, uh, you know, joined in on any, uh, like, class activities or school activities, you know, it was difficult for him to get around. Like, it had to be much more patient than I think somebody that age normally had to be to kind of accommodate, you know, his disability. At the same time, I, I think we were very good about including him. So it, it, it can be very isolating. Also, you know, being a caretaker, like your priorities are put on that person and you tend to neglect a lot of the other people in your life. You know, if somebody reaches out and says, you know, I want to see if you, like, I, are you free to do something? And then you say no because you have this other obligation that person is only going to reach out a certain number of times before they stop reaching out. And so you've potentially lost that that contact to the outside world. And I think it just, the longer you go with that, you know, it, it, it only kind of deteriorates. Yeah. I think that when you are put in that situation as a kid, it's hard to be able to have sort of like the hegemony of the mind to be able to reframe it into a, like a positive empowering situation, you know? And I think that like, you need, like you either need to be able to do that for yourself or the second thing I feel like as if you like sort of choose to put yourself into a caregiving role, like someone that like maybe gives care as a profession, I'm sure must have some of that feeling in order to like, to be doing it on a daily basis and making that choice. But you know, I definitely as a kid, I like just didn't have the mental capacity to reframe in that way. Well, how, did your dad feel about kind of being in the position of having to be cared for? Was it similar to like, like DeAndre's grandparents when that they were like, you know, kind of, I don't know, like prideful people and they were like not happy about it. That is a good question. I am not entirely sure. I know at times he would sort of joke about being cared for and sort of feeling like he was a burden or this or that. I remember actually it was, I don't know, a month or two. I don't remember how long exactly after his stroke, once he was uh, discharged from intensive care and was starting his rehabilitation. I remember sitting in that room uh, with my mom. I don't remember the context of the conversation or anything, but the only time I had ever seen my dad cry, um, I remember him, I remember just him saying, I'm sorry. And I think that was sort of his way of grieving like you know he was the head of the household and all of a sudden here he is in this vulnerable situation and the roles have sort of reversed and my mom is now having to care for him there's all these potential things that he is no longer able to do and to kind of be confronted with that in a very real extreme situation I think it took a massive amount of courage to let that out but i think he did not take it lightly i mean that's that's a huge dramatic life change and i mean i think yeah anybody would react that way yeah and how did how did your mom react to that like role reversal her approach to it was to just be as practical as possible like okay this is happening there's an emergency here's a situation like what can we do to fix it 
Um, so I think she kind of gotten into problem solving mode and I don't know if that sort of served it as a distraction or something like an external thing to kind of focus on, which is good because it, 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 yeah, you're sort of managing the problem at hand and putting all of those other fears and insecurities and, and other questions on the back burner. So I think, uh, yeah, it was just an immediate way of, of kind of, uh, kind of, um, broaching that. But, um, again, that, that wears on you. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, especially the notion of like feeling like a burden, right? Because that's something that I hear about a lot, especially culturally speaking from people from like more, you know, from Asian culture, definitely. I think also definitely from like Latin American culture, specifically you're talking about people who, you know, are dying and a lot of people in America like choose to put them in like a, a like old folks home or some kind of like retirement community. Um, and you know, feeling like that's this really cold move as opposed to having the, like live with you and like the family and it's not an expectation, you know, like not having it be an expectation in America for the family to take care of elderly people or people who, you know, need medical care. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think there's definitely a philosophy here, at least in the United States of, you know, we're going to take care of our own. Um, I think in my own personal experience um i think with my mom she definitely felt well one she had the professional experience to be able to manage a lot of that of, of his medical needs and two i think it's just more comforting to know that you're taking care of them um you know having somebody you know either a professional caregiver or some other sort of help coming in you know there's a degree of trust that needs to go into that. And sometimes, you know, this is somebody that's so close to you that that's not something you might feel comfortable with. Um, there's also a lot of financial constraints too involved in that. Um, so a lot of people opt to, maybe they don't even opt, they have no choice to, you know, do it themselves. And it really, it is a very time intensive task, responsibility, you know, depending on their severity of what, what they're going through. It could be 24 seven. It's crazy because we had this period of, I guess, increasingly like medicalizing things that like people hundreds of years ago, people kind of just like did in their families. And now we're kind of like going back to doing it in the family because there's like just demographically, there's so many older people and not as many younger people, at least in America. And those younger people have so much less money. Right. Um, so like you're seeing this trend of more and more people just like having to take care of their loved ones in their homes. But because we have this notion of everything needing to sort of be done by a professional, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I can only speak from the experience of knowing that this is a trend going on within like the death care industry, of like medicalizing funerals and that kind of thing. And so now people are like, oh, like unless you're a professional, like you can never handle like a dead body. And that similar type of thing is, I feel like, happening in the caregiving space of like, okay, you know, we we need to have this standard. I've just been thinking a lot about like basically professionalizing things that used to be done, like basically as unpaid labor within a family. And I feel like there's some people who feel like that is almost this perverse thing that's going on because like, you know, you want someone in the ideal situation, you want someone who's like caring for you out of love and who's like really going to have your best interest in mind. And we also have so many examples of stories where 
like older people kind of get taken advantage of in a lot of those types of institutions where it's like very medicalized and like professional, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, that kind of goes back to that trust element right. of it because yeah, there's a stranger coming into your house caring for your loved one. And yes, they might be credentialed or, you know, they may have experienced doing this before. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, you know, caregivers are only able to give so much. Mm-hmm. And so it gets to a point to where I think that is a necessity, mm-hmm. might become a necessity. But there are a lot of other constraints too, you know, with your with your budget, what you can afford. You know, if this is also a prolonged kind of thing that you're you're dealing with, you know, how long is that sustainable too? So you're kind of burning the candle at both ends, maybe. Yeah. Did your did your mom ever feel like even though she had medical experience, there was like all kinds of stuff that she still didn't feel like she had the resources or like know how to do? Well, I think like there's it's having the medical knowledge, but also the stamina to continue with that. And yeah. That in and of itself, I think you know, will wear on anybody, you know, the constant stress of, of having to provide, you know, that wreaks havoc on, on your body's immune system, um, another number of other, uh, parts of it as well. Um, and then like the mental health aspect of it too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, depression, anxiety, the isolating effect of it. There's just all these needs that you're really putting on hold and, you know, it just, it compounds, you know, there were times where she couldn't get out of bed because she was just so exhausted physically and mentally from, you know, that role that she was fulfilling. But at the same time, like there's, there's no real into it. Like you have, you have to do it. And so, yeah, it's just this, this constant battle between kind of those two sides. Did either of you have coping mechanisms for how to deal with that? Because I know, you know, in the case of like the, the, the person I know taking care of her mom, she's like, yeah, I joined like this Facebook group for people who are caregivers. And I know there's like, you know, those types of communities for people who are younger, like caregivers now. But I don't know if you had anything like that, like when you were trying to take care of your dad or your grandparents, DeAndre. No, <laughs> not really. I mean, I think there was there was a I remember there being a, like a group of kids at the uh, hospital and I that I would see on a regular basis and I I honestly can't remember if it was like a, an intentional like they brought me to this like group of kids that like were all dealing with like sick parents or grandparents thing or if it was just like literally just so happened that like chemo is a very regular thing and like these kids are always here because like people were like the same people were going to the same chemo sessions but I didn't really feel like I had like a support system or anything like that I would second that yeah yeah I, I did not feel i mean i had mentioned before that family was not really close um both geographically and in terms of my personal relationship with them so they were never there really to to be supportive at least not like on a consistent basis we we had some nice neighbors that like knew that especially after my grandfather died knew that it was just me and my grandma and like i think we're like sort of I can remember them being like proactive about checking in and that like when like when shit went down with my grandmother and I had to call the cops, my neighbor was like the next person that I called. But I'm interested, Tyler, in getting your perspective on whether or not you feel like your experience with caretaking has or like how you feel your experience with caretaking has influenced how you feel about like death. Like I'm, I'm like very afraid of death. Like it's like my most crippling fear. And I honestly can't tell if it's because of like the way I was raised. I think that like, if you ask a therapist, they probably say yes. <laughs> but I'm interested in getting your take on that. 
Yeah. Actually, I just had a thought, and I think living with somebody that's so close to you that is suffering from a chronic illness, um, you know, since you are kind of, I don't know, living on, on borrowed time, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're operating at a borrowed time. So I think that sense of, you know, not if, but when is much more protracted than it might be for somebody that's per, you know perfectly healthy. It's like so, a looming sense of like, when is this going to happen? Yeah. I think it kind of eases the fear a little bit because you know, it's, it's, going to be happening at some point i mean like in in my father's case we didn't know when that would be um so i didn't mention this before but he was uh 55 when this happened which when he had a stroke he was 55 mm-hmm. yeah so fortunately like i guess because he was younger in some senses like perhaps he was able to live out a better quality of life because his body was in better shape what was the original question? <laughs> oh, just like if you feel like your personal view on death has been affected or altered in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, I would say that it was most heavily impacted close to, closer to his death. And it was very sudden. He had hit his head, I believe, at some point. I don't know if he was trying to get out of his chair and slipped and fell. His, his head hit the floor and bounced off. Um, it seemed like there wasn't... Um, kind of any issue at the time but maybe six to eight months later he really started deteriorating he was admitted to the hospital he had i guess been walking and had collapsed and so we rushed him to the to the er drove him there and they you know did all these tests standard tests and uh, realized that they, they couldn't really pinpoint what was going on um my mom did not feel comfortable about that, so she pressed the medical professionals to keep looking. And so they ended up doing a scan of him, and they discovered that he had developed two subdural hematomas, which are basically pools of blood on the brain, so it's bleeding on the brain. And so they had been creating all of this pressure on his, his brain, which had probably led to the paralysis that he had been experiencing when when he collapsed. So... I remember when the doctor who was on call at the time came in and relayed that news, his face was just completely pale because this is an extremely serious condition. And I think the size of those two pools of blood, those hematomas, um, you know, he knew immediately that this was not good news. So the next course of action was to transmit or to, to transfer him to uh, another hospital where they had, um, better resources to to kind of handle that and basically kind of the treatment for that is to try to siphon the blood away to reduce the pressure so he underwent that but I'll back up a little bit um you know he was getting ready for surgery you know I think my mom and I maybe more so me because I don't have the medical experience to kind of understand maybe the severity of I didn't have the medical experience to understand the severity of, of maybe the condition, the likelihood of, you know, coming out of that as he could. Um, so my mom maybe had a more practical outlook on it. Um, I'm not really sure kind of what was going through her head, but I, in my head, I don't, I think I just assumed, you know, he would go through the surgery and come out of it. Um, you know, there will obviously be recovery involved, but, um, I don't think I really understood kind of, yeah, the gravity of, of that. So 
going into that, I remember, you know, we were, we were chatting, he was getting ready to go into surgery. And the last thing that my dad told us was, um, you know, where I want to be buried. And so I remember my mom quickly turned to him and was like, no, you know, like, stop joking. Like, you know, we'll, we'll see you when you come out. And I, and looking back, I think he sort of knew what was up. He knew that, you know, this is potentially my last chance. I want to get that out there. So long story short, he went into surgery. When he came out, he never ended up regaining consciousness. I remember maybe an hour or two after the surgery, he underwent some very severe seizures. And I think kind of from there, his, his condition really just went downhill. You know, throughout this process, we had been in contact with the neurosurgeon to try to get a sense of like what his prognosis would be, what we could expect going forward, about what kind of quality of life he would be able to enjoy. It was, it was honestly the most ups and downs I think I've ever experienced in my entire life because one minute, you know, there's potentially promising prognosis. The next minute it's like, you know, something has drastically changed and your hopes that you had have completely shattered. Um, it got to a point where, you know, there was potential that he might not be able to see again. And just, you know, he was an avid reader and to be able to, to have to go through life like that, I think just it would be cruel to put him with, put him through that. So it's, it's tough because unless you've explicitly talked about this beforehand, you don't really have a good sense of like in the stressful moment, you're having to really decide for another person and it's yep. life and death. So yeah, he, he never ended up regaining consciousness and my mom and I had to make the decision to you know, remove life support, trying to make his, trying to make him as comfortable as possible, essentially. Um, so I remember after making that decision, he was transferred to, uh, like the palliative care unit there in the hospital. And so it was this weird, it felt like limbo because you're just waiting for this person to die, but you're like super stressed out. You can't sleep, but it's like, you're also really calm. It's this otherworldly experience. Um, I remember my mom and I each had private moments to where we could just share whatever thoughts we, we had with him. We tried to make the most of the situation, even though it was clearly not ideal. Um, and I would say about maybe a week or so after that happened, um, you know, I think he was on a morphine pump and we had given one last dose of the medication and then he just took his last breath and then I remember the blood just his face went pale because his heart was no longer pumping and I remember yeah he, he him taking his last breath and then going out and notifying the nursing station that he had passed away and then it was very strange we just my mom and I left and started driving home and it just like this weird detachment from that person that was there uh, yeah i think it's similarly when both of my grandparents died it was like you know when you're expecting it 
yeah, you're just like kind of like waiting for it and then it happens. And then it almost feels like you and your family are like, okay, we can start the next process, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's that. And then I don't know if this is, if this happens immediately after, but you get this huge sense of relief Yeah. because there's this finality to it and you finally, I don't know, can relax in a way. Yeah. But then I felt like, I felt that and also I was like, damn, am I a shitty person for feeling like relief after this? Yeah. And after many years, I, I think that's a natural thing to feel Yeah, like you're, you finally have some amount of respite from that entire experience, which perhaps could be, you know, have been going on for years. And then all of a sudden it's just, there's this snap moment that, that changes all of that. But then like to your point, you know, you're wrapped up in all of the funeral arrangements and all those next steps and going through all of the, you know, items that are involved of taking care of somebody and, you know, their, uh, kind of the remnants of, of their life afterwards. So it doesn't, it doesn't really end right there. Yeah. Going back to what Isabel said, man, it would have been great to have someone to like, sort of like tell you what to expect. Like that would have been amazing. Well, going off of that, is there something that if you, you know, could advise yourself and be your own sort of mentor in that situation that you would say? I feel like going back to what Tyler just said, like, I felt, I remember being like a kid at my grandfather's funeral and not feeling sad at all because I was the person that was sort of like, well, me and my grandmother were the person that like, like watching him experience pain for, you know, X amount of years. And like I'd heard him like say on more than one occasion that he was like excited to die. I think that it would be like dope if whether this person was future me or not for someone to have said to me like, yo, it's okay to like not be crying right now or like it's okay to sort of feel the sense of relief because I think that it's something that like caused me a lot of like internal strife for a long time. Like, damn, am I a monster for like not crying at this funeral but in reality i think the funeral isn't for the caretakers to make their send off i think that as you were saying like the caretakers make their send off way like way earlier typically as the person is actually passing and the funeral is for all the people that you know weren't there for that and haven't made their peace with it but i don't think that i well, i know that that was never like appropriately sort of like explained to me yeah, no, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think having some validation for what you're going through to show that it's normal, that it's correct, that I think I think you can't really argue with how you feel. Like you feel that way one way or another. It's how you react to that that brings a lot of strife to it. But I think what I would add to that is um in addition to yeah, kind of providing some guidance about what to expect and to sort of show that what you're feeling is normal. It's a normal response to what you're going through. Um, I think I would tell my younger self, I don't why, I mean, I didn't really have a lot of control over this, but if my circumstances could have been different, I wish there had been more support there because I think the caretaking role is inherently difficult and to go through that alone or with minimal help, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult and tiring, especially given the long 
standing nature of uh, just care caregiving. So I think having something in place to to ease that responsibility, um, you know, might have made it a lot more bearable and and um, sustainable over time. Has it changed the way that you live your life now? I think it's it's taken me a really long time to kind of reset what normal is, or to figure that out. I I think becoming a caretaker at a later age, um, you've already lived a lot of your life. You you have a better sense of yourself, and I think it's easier to kind of separate the two. But when you grow up with that, you you kind of it can make you perhaps not pay as close attention to your own needs um and kind of distorts how it is that you that you operate so i think it's yeah it's it's been what six or seven years since that happened since he passed away and i think you're you, you never really kind of fully get out of that that mindset and i think you know there's a there is a likelihood actually there's there's a very certainty that I'm going to be a caretaker at some point again in in the future, you know, with my mom, with another family member. Um, so I guess in a way, yeah, I, you know, having been there, done that, you can hopefully adjust and, um, you know, kind of make changes to hopefully make the experience a lot more um, healthy and, and sustainable overall. so much for coming on the show it was like sort of just dope to chat with someone that i feel like has a shared experience with me no i agree um i think as caretakers especially caretakers that have fallen into that role at such a young age yeah it can be very uh sort of cathartic yeah to talk to somebody that has gone through the same thing because most people our age do not have that yeah. same experience so yeah, it was very good to, to not only tell the story tell my story but have somebody that can really identify, I think, in a way that most people cannot. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much to anyone listening. If you, you know, liked what you heard, I feel like liked is a loaded term, but you know, if you felt that you learned something or that you can like share in this experience, um, please feel free to let us know on, at I'm the villain pod on Twitter or Instagram. That's also our Gmail account. If you have any questions for us or for Tyler, um, otherwise, bye. <laughs>